once again into the soccer OG. That's me, Max Bretos. This is episode 19. Can you believe it? As I always do like to get on here to remind you to please subscribe, download, tell a friend, rate, review. We really like the reviews. Go in and say something nice. You can say something not so nice, but we prefer it if it's nice. I'm sure you're going to say something nice because that's why you're here listening to this on your precious time, your valuable time. We have another great show coming up, just like we did previewing the round of 16. Keith Costigan and Eric Krakauer are back. We will preview the quarterfinals. We'll let you know what happened, how we did with our predictions. In a round of 16, the likes I have never seen, the best day in knockout football history, I'll ask the guys. Coming up in stoppage time, yes, we'll have some stoppage time this week, I will discuss the Gold Cup. It is time for the Gold Cup. We're going to transition from Copa America and the Euros to our backyard here. We'll talk about the venues, we'll talk about the groups, and then we'll get you ready. A little bit of a primer before we preview that competition that is coming up just moments ahead. Big show. Let's talk quarterfinals of the Euros. Who had Ukraine? Who had this guy? We'll be back. The show starts right now. And we are back here on the Soccer OG. I hope you're enjoying your summertime. It's officially here in summer. Fourth of July coming up, which is on Sunday. And we'll be popping out a new podcast on that Sunday. As uh, we'll probably be down to the semifinals. We will be down to the semifinals of the European Championships. We'll be into the knockout stages of Copa America. We'll be a week away from the Gold Cup. Later on this program on Stoppage Time, I will give you a Gold Cup primer. I guess that's the best way to call it. I was in Las Vegas. So uh, taking a look at Allegiant Stadium and scoping out the uh, logistics. for <laughs> We're really going into uncharted waters here about Las Vegas as a sports venue. So we couldn't do it last year when the Raiders season one for COVID, obviously. But that's going to change here. And I was in Las Vegas and it is back to normal. I mean, it is packed with people. I mean, you have to really wade through the masses uh, on the streets there. So. Now the big event, and that's going to be the Gold Cup final. If it happens to be USA-Mexico, batten down the hatches. And when I say that, I mean get your butt to Vegas. It's going to be fantastic. So we'll get you ready for that here in a little bit. We also have the business end. Three-way. Two-man enter. One, Three-man enter. One-man leave. We were okay. We were pretty good on our picks. Keith Costigan of Fox Sports and the Seattle Sounders and Eric Krakauer B in Sports. They actually got into a little tussle on Twitter about the the uh, red card of Danielson in the Sweden game, which has got people on both sides going crazy. That's not a red card. It is it is a red card. I I I, I don't want to get into a, a down a rabbit hole here about uh, the way the game used to be and how it looks now and what was a red and what isn't a red and how a, a player should have the right to follow through. You can't do that. So uh, you've got it is a contact sport. You got to protect them. So we'll get into that amongst many other topics, including the best day I have ever seen in European Championship, and I would tend to think in World Cups as well. And that was the Saturday of the round of sixteen when Spain beat Croatia five three, and then France and Switzerland went three three to penalties. To see two huge comebacks the way the Croats and the Swiss did, and the Swiss finishing the job, it's it was nothing that I've ever seen before. I mean, we assumed the games were over. 
you would be crazy not to think those two games were over. When Paul Bogba scored arguably the game, the goal of the tournament, and he does this Eric Cantona celebration, you're like, it's over. That is that is fantastic to see. And the French are going to get closer to winning back-to-back major tournaments. And then it all collapses. And it's because the Swiss were aggressive. We've seen this Switzerland team over the last six years. It's basically the same team. And this time they were able to get over the uh, the hump. And they'll get Spain coming up on Friday. And we will preview that game. By the way, the, uh, the juxtaposition of going through two games in a completely full stadium or close to a full stadium... And then going to a completely empty stadium is not good. It's not going to fly. This is, I think the tournament should have started identifying these venues where you could have had fans because it's been the best part of it. It's seeing people come back to life the way it should be. More than it's ever been in sports. More than I've seen fans coming back, going to bars, shoulder to shoulder. It's it's something we've been waiting for, and we didn't know how quickly it happened. But base it took a long time. But once it got going, it's it, it's moved very quickly. So I'm not going to take too much more time, as we'll get into that discussion here shortly. I will say something, and I, people on Twitter keep telling you, you know, Belgium playing Italy or England Germany. You don't want to miss this game. This is going to be one of the classics of all time. When people tell you that. They clearly have not seen a major soccer tournament, right? Because that's never the case. Those two games that I pointed out in the round of 16 were arguably the two worst games of that round. I'm not saying they can't be the best game, but just because it's Belgium and Portugal and Ronaldo, you think it's going to be this spectacular event. You've not seen enough of these soccer tournaments to know how, how it goes. It doesn't go that way. You gotta get caught by surprise. So, yes, we look forward to the matchups, and we're gonna get great matchups. We have great matchups in the quarterfinals. We, have, although, you think of possibly a France-Spain matchup, maybe an England-Sweden, which isn't that sexy, but it was a quarterfinal of the World Cup. Maybe the Netherlands-Denmark. They no, those didn't happen. You had a really good mix of surprise results, incredible games, moments of controversy. Big decisions by referees. So uh, as I pointed out and how great this tournament is, it is delivered once again. We still have the quarterfinals. So what, we have seven games to go? I don't know if there's a third place game. If there is, I don't I don't think there is. I hope there isn't. It's a waste of time. The business end of the soccer OG coming back. Please subscribe, rate, review. The podcast is growing and you're helping out. We'll be right back. Time now for the business end. And as we did at the round of 16, we got the band back together for our quarterfinal preview slash predictions. Eric Krakauer, BN Sports, Keith Costigan of Fox Sports, and the Seattle Sounders. Gentlemen, uh, Ukraine bailed us out because that Ukraine victory meant we went six out of eight, which sounds a lot better than five out of eight. So feel free to pat yourself on the back. People are going to come back for more. The gamblers are going to flock towards us to get these predictions. <laughs> uh, I, well, let's get into it. The quarterfinals are set and uh, ju- Friday and Saturday of this week, starting with Belgium, Italy in Munich, uh, Belgium beating Portugal. So I'll start with you, Eric, because the Portuguese game, after everyone said this is a game you cannot miss, this will be one of the great games in Euro history. 
not only it wasn't that it was probably the worst game of the eight, although England, Germany gave it a push, but that doesn't matter. It's all about advancing. It's not about it's it's about winning a euro. And Belgium certainly did that with some tactics that a lot of people weren't crazy about, but it worked. Portugal, 23 shots. Belgium, one shot on goal with 42% possession. I don't know if that's going to work long term, but Portugal have to be feeling they left a lot on the table. So before we talk about Belgium, your thoughts on the performance from Portugal? Well, they left a lot on the table, but it wasn't just in that game. It was in the tournament as a whole. I think they go back to Portugal with their tails in between their legs. And most of the blame has to be directed at Fernando Santos, who has one of the most talented Portuguese generations ever. I would argue that the team that played in the Euro 2000 and 2002 as a collective was probably uh, better. But, you know, I was one of those people who didn't expect this to be a good game because I'd seen Belgium's games and I'd seen Portugal play as well. So I knew it was going to be tentative. Both of them would be in defensive shells when the other had possession. And ultimately, it takes a defensive mistake from Portugal, not closing down Thorgan Hazard, who I'd labeled as a threat in a podcast that I did, uh, a Celestone podcast, which is an English-speaking uh, Portuguese podcast or Portuguese national team podcast. They said, look, he's going to cut in and he's going to get a couple of shots. And if you don't close him down, he's got the ability to punish you and punish us. He did. And after that, all that Belgium does is just sit back in a, in a defensive shell, use Lukaku as somebody who can hold up the ball. And he was excellent in, yeah. in doing so and attack in transition in Portugal. You know, you mentioned the 23 shots, but I don't think that statistics tells a really good story. The only good opportunities they had was a Gredo shot that went off the post and a header that Ruben Diaz, uh, you know, uh, hit right at uh, Thibaut Courtois. So at the end of the day, while they may have been marginally better, I think Belgium just got the early goal and they knew what to do to manage the rest of the game. Max, 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 yes, Max, yes, Keith. I, I just have a point. Are we are we giving a lot of airtime here to a team that are not going to be in the quarterfinals right now? I, I, was, <laughs> I was rechecking the list and I'm Portugal but, or out, but now, just just to Eric, get some closure. Eric, yeah, no, Eric, I, and and I'd be interested to hear your guys' thoughts. I I think it kind of reminded me of when you win that trophy playing a certain way. Santos uh, won the Euros with Portugal playing a certain way. I don't think it was the most expansive football ever. But then all of a sudden, people start telling you, well, you have a much better squad now. You have much better players now. You get caught in, in, in the mindset of we have to be the team that are going forward. And I, I thought that game against Germany was, was almost like the most naive performance I've seen in, in the Euros so far. You look at what England did with Gossens to, to, to nullify his threat. And, and Portugal were like, no, we're worried about us. Here's what we're going to do. And I, I still think at this level, even though Germany are a, a wounded warrior, they're still going to come back at you. So I, I think they were caught in between um, what's best for getting results and what's best to try showcase the individual talented players that they have. And, and ultimately, that's why I think they're going home. But I, 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 don't, I wasn't particularly impressed with Belgium. But I, I do think Belgium have the look of a side that we've so many times said they played well, but they didn't make it. They're, gonna, they're saying to themselves, we're going to get through any way we can. It's about winning this competition. I, I think that bodes well long term. So they'll get the Italians who beat Austria two to one. Uh, we, I, I have not seen a, an impact off the bench as well as I saw that from Mancini in the Austria game with Chiesa and Pessina scoring goals off the bench. Bellotti, they all made an impact. It just goes to show this is a deep team. He got everyone a game throughout the competition, including both goalkeepers, as we touched on in the last program. So it certainly bodes well for Italy, but they were pushed finally 
but they were, even though Arnautovic got a goal that was just marginally offside, but it was, it could have changed everything here. And the Italians bounced through. So I guess the question is, Keith, when we look at this Belgium-Italy game, how do we we expect Belgium to play the same? They're going to face a, a, a different type of Italian squad. I, I guess the questions are, how are they going to play the Italians? Three questions. The health of Aiden Hazard and Kevin De Bruyne, those are both in question. And obviously De Bruyne is massive. Hazard is two, but I think they've proven they've had some decent cover for him. And the third question is what's the lineup going to look like for Italy? Because if the reserves, you know, look, Atelli, who looks so well coming in, does he get a start? There's a there's a lot of stuff that makes this compelling as we head towards the matchup on Friday. Yeah, I think with Belgium first, obviously De Bruyne, we saw in the Denmark game, I thought where Belgium were were poor for large spells, De Bruyne comes on and, it, you know, sometimes we look at, you know, that was a tactical win or we look at a game and say that was an individual player sparking a win and that, that's what De Bruyne can do. Um, I, I, I look at, I look at Italy as being the team that will dominate possession. Not quite sure what they'll do. And Overati started the last game. And uh, I, I think when he's available, there's almost the sense that he has to play given his stature. Um, I'm not quite sure that's the case, given the performances in the group stages without him. So that's a, that's a big decision for Mancini. But I, I think Italy are going to be the team that dominate possession. Um, I, I just remember... Um, uh, Spinazzola gets forward from left back. I remember Belgium doing a job where Lukaku went wide right to really exploit Brazil getting forward on their left flank. And, and Lukaku almost played as a right winger for spells in that game, and they got the results. So I think Martinez quite enjoys those little tactical moments in games that he can pick out a mismatch. So I wouldn't be surprised to see Lukaku drift to that channel and, and try drag one of the centre-backs out. Um, it, it's funny... If this game was played in any other era, we'd be saying Italy sitting back, Belgium trying to have the ball. I think it's going to be the other way around. Hmm. And ultimately, I just see Lukaku. I know I mentioned the Bruyne, but I just see Lukaku's ability in those transition moments being the key. And I have Belgium going through in this one. But I think it's going to be – I do think this is going to be a much better game than what we saw in Portugal and Belgium. This is it. This is it for, you would imagine, this group. Maybe obviously the next World Cup, the last Euro run for this Belgian team. Uh, there's pressure. They've they've managed through to, to get to these these stages, quarterfinals, semifinals. Uh, do, do they have enough to get through? This is going to be a mighty test against an unexpected Italian team, as you would compare to the team that didn't make the World Cup to all of a sudden being one of the best teams in Europe. Keith says it's going to be you said Belgium, right, Keith? Belgium, yeah. What about you? What about you, Eric? Well, I think it's going to be Italy, and I just want to hearken to the last time we were together on the podcast, and I mentioned that Italy could become their own worst enemies or Mancini at least could be if he messed with that trio that worked so well in the first two games. And you already alluded to this, uh, Keith, but Verratti coming in, I think, hurt the balance that was so perfectly poised in those first two games. And you saw the difference that Locatelli made when he got into the, the game. And one of the things that I thought that made Italy so effective in the group stage were the vertical runs that they made. You know, you always had midfielders, their opponents, midfield and defenders looking at each other, trying to figure out who was chasing those those late runs into the box. And you didn't see many of those against Austria in the beginning. It took the substitutes to make that happen. In fact, the first goal that they score against Austria, uh, Pessina makes a vertical run that sucks in Alaba and that allows the space for Chiesa to do the damage. And that was something that we didn't see. Now, I hope, not I hope, because I really don't have a horse in the race, but if I were an Italian supporter, I would hope that Mancini looked at that, Mancini 
looked at that and thought, all right, we need to go back to what worked so effectively uh, for us. And maybe that's starting with the midfield trio that we had. One of the things that I think uh, gives Italy a distinct advantage in this game is that they're going to do something that Portugal were reluctant to do, and that is they're going to press high. And if you're going to look at one of the weaknesses of this Belgian uh, national team, it's their ability to play out of the back. And, and it's strange because in Vertonghen and Alderweireld, you have two pretty good ball players, but for some reason in this system, they're having a little bit of uh, trouble. And the last point uh, will be about Hazard and, and Kevin De Bruyne. Two game cha changers. I think actually Hazard had a pretty good second half uh, in, in that game against Portugal, holding the ball. It reminded me a little bit of the performance that you just mentioned, Keith, against Brazil, when Belgium were sitting back and he was the guy who was the outlet and would dribble away from, from danger. De Bruyne was non-existent uh, against Portugal. They kept the ball away from him. So if Italy, if they play and Italy manages to do that and manages to press high efficient, efficiently, I actually think they have a real advantage here. Is that your pick? Yes. Okay, I'm, go I'm going with positive football, too, in the Italians. I think it's hard if the Belgians come out the way against the Portuguese. I think they'll get punished. I hope they'll get punished. This is the pick of the litter of the quarter. I, we want positive football. Like the Swiss. Are we, are, we, are we predicting a good game, though, in this one? I mean, you yes. guys think it's a better game. Yeah, yeah I, I, so, I do. I really think. So we're going to have Italy going through and our predictions may save your backside here, Keith, just because of that. <laughs> so uh, the Italians, that's going to be the pick of the litter of the quarterfinals on paper. But as we have learned, maybe the other games will all be superior, including later that day, St. Petersburg, Switzerland and Spain. It's impossible to talk about this quarterfinal without talking about what happened in the round of 16. 14 goals in those two matches as the Swiss knocked out the reigning World Cup champs and then Spain with uh, eight goals in their game to beat Croatia. Uh, both go extra time. The French get knocked out in penalties. You, you cannot talk about these matchups without mentioning Kylian Mbappe, who looked out of it, fatigued. I don't think there's any question about his talent. There was just something not clicking for a young player who's had a lot on his plate. So I will give him a pass. Some of these guys just need a break. Maybe that is, is it's nothing more than that. Maybe there's something more to it because Kylian Mbappe in, in a penalty shootout where nine guys made their penalties was the only guy who missed his. So the European champs, Portugal, the World Cup champs, France are out ahead of the quarterfinals. I will start with you, Keith, and just looking at these games because I woke up that day. It was Monday, and I said, these two games are going to be stinkers. This the. the Croatia, Spain, Switzerland, France. And it turned out you could argue and have a real good argument that it was the best day in tournament history in a football world, Euro Copa America. I've gone through my memory banks. I can't think of anything that I've seen like that. And the, the cherry on top is the Swiss down two goals where I'm praising France. I think everyone was. And then they sneak in and get two goals to force extra. And it was unbelievable. It was a science fiction movie. Yeah, I think I'll start with the, the Switzerland-France game. I, I've said it before about France. I think I said it when we spoke last time. I don't like the fact that they're, they're, they're a counter-punching team that has a knockout punch. Why not lead that way? I, I think when, when Switzerland went 1-0 up, when they missed the penalty, I'm thinking, okay, you know, this has sprung them into life, and it did. They go 3-1 up. The most remarkable thing about this is then that, that Switzerland managed to find a way to come back in. It was like France went 3-1 up, took their foot off the gas again, 
Griezmann off Sissoko on. Uh, I mean, look, it's the 88th minute. You're not thinking this is going to be extra time again. But this is a, a, a substitution that I think was key to, to not really offering anything for France going forward in the, in the extra time stage. I thought Griezmann actually played quite well in this game. I know we'll talk about Benzema getting the goals, but I thought his link play was really good. So I, I thought Didier Deschamps really didn't manage this game well. But I, I, was, I always think when you're, you're an international uh, manager... And you don't have as much talent as the other team. One of the things you can manipulate is the system that you play. And I thought that's what Switzerland did with, with the, their, their system. It, it made it more difficult. Uh, Zuber was really good. But then again, France made Zuber look like he was, you know, the reincarnation of Roberto Carlos and Marcelo. So for me, it was, it, it was, um, it was a really good tactical setup from Switzerland. I never expected them to come back once they were down 3-1. Incredible performance. Spain, I, I think, have gone under the radar in this tournament. I think... I think they played quite well, um, a lot better than maybe other people have given them credit for. Um, conceded a couple of sloppy ones, but overall, I thought they were far the superior team against Croatia. They created a number of chances again, um, as they have in pretty much every game. The, the Poland game aside, they created a lot of chances against Sweden. I fancied Spain to be France. That was my big you know, prediction before France got knocked out. I see Spain going through, and um, they just have a possession-based um, that they can they can dominate with the ball. And I think that's going to be difficult for Switzerland. Switzerland saw more of the ball against France than they will against Spain. And ultimately, I think that's going to be the key in this one. Uh, your thoughts on that round of 16 day, uh, Eric, what stood out in all the goals, all the drama, and uh, let's spin it forward to what we're going to see here on Friday. Well, it's amazing. Keith and I don't agree about tackles, but when it comes to sort of tactics and the way that game's played out... We, we're, we're right on, you know, we're, we're in agreement, we're in, in sync. And I think that the point that I'd underscore first is that Switzerland had a system that we did see throughout uh, this tournament. Everybody seemed to know what they were doing. In the beginning, I, I thought that uh, Petkovic wasn't sure who his starters were going to be. And then he put Zuber in because Zuber was at first was a substitute. He comes yeah. in, begins to change the game, and he was the star uh, in, in, in this game. But if there was one question mark for me about France, other than the negative tactics that Keith talked about, it was where they were going to find the wit. This is a team that has had to shoehorn Benzema into a system that also has Griezmann. So you begin to think, well, the width is going to be offered by Kylian Mbappe. He likes playing out of the left side, and that's where he's going to be the most dangerous. But once you cancel that out in some way, whether you double-team him, and that's what Switzerland, I thought, did really well, where else do you find the width? And this was something I mentioned the last time we were on together. Uh, Pavard is a center back who's been turned into a right back. And all of a sudden he's playing in the right back, in the right wing back position. And he's never really offered much going forward. On the left side, you had Rabiot because you don't have your, your fullbacks. And it just seemed that going to a three center back system in this situation, I understand what Deschamps was thinking. We need width. Maybe this is the way to find it. But it completely backfired. Having said that, he made the necessary adjustments at the half, and France uh, yeah. took, control, took control of the game after Ricardo Rodriguez misses the penalty. And at that point, I thought, I even tweeted this, I think, it, the, the, you've pissed off the Giants, and they're going to run riot all over you. And they had that opportunity. And they did. <laughs> and, and they had that opportunity. And what was two things really stuck out to me about that game. Number one, it was how Switzerland, who looked utterly dejected and demoralized, were able to somehow find a lifeline. Because you looked at them and you thought, oh man, this is a team who, that could concede seven or eight goals once they conceded that third goal. 
So they found that extra gear and I don't know how. And the other thing was France inexplicably just taking their foot off the pedal. I understand the substitution. I understand pulling Griezmann out. We need to remember that Switzerland had, I think, two days of extra rest, right? Or at least one on the French. You're preparing for what you think is going to be a, a quarterfinal matchup against the Spanish. You want to rest one of your star players. But boy, did it uh, backfire. And very quickly on Spain, I agree with Keith. I, I think Spain right now are, are my favorites to win this tournament. And they would have been even if France had won that game. I think people have done them a little bit unfairly. They've played a lot better than their results in the beginning. They dominated against Sweden. Robin Holson was terrific in goal. And they have all the ingredients that you need in order to be successful. I don't understand why Lucho Enrique continues to insist on Morata, but man, did he silence his detractors yeah. with a world-class goal. So we, I, I think we'll all agree with Spain. I mean, Spain had a Spain had a game where they left the door open and they were able to come back. The huge gaffe, obviously, by Unai Simon. And then you had the uh, just giving up the goals here to Croatia, just uh, getting not having the attention to detail, not doing those things. I think they'll learn from that. And everyone seems to be chiming in, whether it's Sarabia, Fernand Torres, who was able to get the goal. And Morata, you couldn't feel any better for a player to get the monkey off his back and be able to score that. I think it's Spain here, and I would tend to agree with you, Eric, on the run that they can make. Very positive football. And this really may be more a thing. Can Switzerland do this again? I just don't think you, you know, we talk about those things on the periphery, the emotions, and to come back and make a quarterfinal for the first time or a, win a game in the knockout stages, I think, for the first time since the 30s is a massive achievement. And we look at all these coaches that have had tenure and they've all kind of had a bad spot here. Yergi Love, who we'll talk about in a little bit. You mentioned Fernando Santos, obviously Didier Deschamps. And I think, as you pointed out perfectly, a lot of this is on his shoulders. But then you have Vlad Petkovic, who's been there for a while. And you wondered if he was going to have his moment. And he did. So it kind of balances out the tenured coaches. I tend to think you have one cycle and you may be a little bit more. But I'm glad for Petkovic. You had this great moment looking out to the crowd and. I think that'll be the last moment as the Spanish push through. Just a very a quick point, Max, and that is that there is no Granit Xhaka for this game. He's suspended. And he, yeah, and he was, was great. Outstanding. And he's one of those players who is better for his national team than he is for, club, uh, for his club team, although he was very good in Germany. So th that needs to, uh, to be said. Petkovic has done a remarkable job and worth pointing out as well that he has had the same core group of players for a very long time. So it's easy to implement a system when you've been there that long and you have the same players. And he's implemented that system. And a lot of times they've left you wanting more, but this time they delivered. All right. So we have half our semifinal setup and everyone would sign up for an Italy, Spain. They'd sign up for a Belgium, Spain. I, they'd sign up for an Italy, Switzerland, quite frankly, because it's a semifinal Saturday <laughs> in Rome, England will face Ukraine. We, uh, we predicted that. England-Germany was one weird game. Uh, it just took so long to get going. And uh, beating Germany and doing it after the history that you've had, Gareth Southgate and this English team deserves all the credit. And what makes them so dangerous to me is they have, you know, these teams start thinning out. And Ukraine, they left it all out there against Sweden. Uh, there are some injuries. It was a very physical game. Uh, they, they're going to they're not going to be fully loaded. And then England has a bench. We're like sitting there. Amazing. Who does England have on the bench? Oh, they have Rashford, Bellingham, Sancho and Grealish. 
I, they could go for days. If they get a bad spot, they have a, a get out of a get out of jail guard card here. And they used it with Grealish, who was able to unlock it. Raheem Sterling, who has had his critics, I don't know why, gets the goal. And then Harry Kane, who has been much maligned, able to tap in for the second. So they check a lot off their box. The, scene, the scenes in Wembley and outside throughout England, as always, the English fans do their best to illuminate a tournament. They did it. And that's going to get worse here, Keith, as we go on, because we're going to have to, to deal with it. And I, and I think most people feel they'll get by the Ukraine, not just because they have better talent, but because Ukraine feel a little worn out. England still I haven't conceded a goal. So they're doing it a certain way and still feel to me far from hitting fifth gear yet still moving along in this tournament. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't mind talking about England. And I think um, we, we almost forget about how teams win tournaments. And, you know, we, we want to say we don't just want to win. We want to be the most, you know, uh, fashionable team going forward. We want to be the, the creative side. I mean, I remember France 98 watching France be absolutely anemic in front of goal for 115 minutes before Blanc scored a header against Paraguay. Yeah, they, they, in the round of 16. Yeah, it was nil-nil against Italy, if I'm not mistaken. They won on penalties. They went one-nil down to Croatia. And, you know, Lilian Thuram produced one of the best semi-final displays to get them back into that game. And it was only the final where you saw, you know, Zidane even at his best, who was suspended throughout, uh, for, for a little bit of that tournament as well. So for me, we, we forget about how you get there. It is a grind sometimes. Spain in 2008 were, were nervy in the, in, the, in the knockout stages up until the final against Germany. Nervy in the final as well. I, I admire the fact that Southgate is not afraid to leave out the flair players. It's not necessarily the decisions I would make, but I think you have to have a lot of courage and a lot of belief in your own ability to do that. All this noise in England is, you must play Grealish. Big name people saying this and Southgate going, no. Playing Trippier, nullifying Ghosts and saying, I'm going to nullify what Germany are going to do because I feel elsewhere we're better than them. He did that. I don't think it was a great performance, but it doesn't have to be. England haven't won anything since you might have heard this year about 75,000 times today, 1966. This is about England. It's coming home. To, it's, it's coming yeah. home, Keithy. <laughs> this is about England getting to a final. And I think, I think Southgate's pragmatic approach will serve them well. I, I think Grealish is going to come in for Saka in this game against Ukraine. I've watched the Ukraine a couple of times. I, I think they're a better team than I thought they were coming into the tournament, but I don't think they're a side that can sit and, and really trouble on the counter as well as you would need to. I think Sweden would have been a more difficult matchup. That's just my opinion. Um, but ultimately, I see England going through. And this. don't think it's going to be, you know, a, 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 you know, a massive score. I think, you know, 1-0, 2-0. But ultimately, I see England going through. And by the way, Gustin's after that uh, performance against Portugal, everyone was saying it's the rebirth of Roberto Carlos. So I'm like, hey, everyone, pump the brakes. Uh, he's, still, he's still a good player, but it, it felt a little bit getting carried away. And England did a nice job to take that away from the Germans. So it's falling in place for England. They have no control over that. They've gotten it. But as we've learned in this tournament, weird things happen. So nothing is easy. But this English team seem like they're getting a good they're getting a good turn of events here, Eric. And now this Ukraine team, we, we they've shown such grit. They were a third place team, mind you, and they've made it here to the quarterfinals with their legendary coach. And you could see the emotions rolling off of them after getting by Sweden. But they're here. They have a couple of days to regroup and see if they can pull off a huge surprise in Rome. 
Yeah, look, I had Ukraine uh, beating Sweden. It was a lot closer than I thought, even though I, I thought it was going to be a close game. I think if you look at both these teams uh, pound for pound, I actually believe Ukraine have more individual talent. And the mm. reason a lot of people may not agree with me is because so many of those names are, are foreign to, to, to a lot of people. Uh, I also think that Sweden has some overhyped players like Kulushevsky. I know a lot of people are very high on him and he's got a terrific left boot, but he's wildly inconsistent and far too dependent on that left peg of his. I also like what Shevchenko has done with this team. Uh, I think, I, again, I mentioned this. We've seen him uh, um, approach games in different ways and not to me and always somewhat successfully. And that says to me that, he knows exactly what he wants to do, and there's buy-in from the players. And obviously, they understand what it is that he wants to do. So he matched up well uh, against Sweden today, going with the three uh, center backs, putting Zinchenko on the left, which is a position that he's used to after playing as a center midfielder for most of the tournament. And he turns out to be uh, the key player. But this was a game of fine margins. I do think that England have a distinct advantage over them because they just have them more talent. And ultimately, even though he doesn't seem that reliant on it, he has a better bench, Southgate. And I will echo the point that Keith made. I think it's tremendous of him to be able to, uh, to stand all that pressure that he's getting from the media and from the Twitterati like ourselves to put in those flair players, right? I mean, again, I'm with Keith. I would, I love Jaden Sancho. I think he's a generational player. And the fact that he's not at getting much game time is a mystery to me, but it's working so far. And to your point about Gosens, he looked like a superstar against Portugal. That's because they laid out the red carpet for him. Here, have this <laughs> entire avenue and do whatever you want. And they never uh, adjusted. Um, Ultimately, in the end, it has to be said, though, that England were a little bit fortunate. I mean, Thomas Muller, nine out of ten times, puts that shot away. It's a, a gimme for a player uh, of his uh, ability. And when they're chasing the game, they leave themselves open at the back. They make a mistake. And Harry Kane, who looks like he has cinder blocks for feet in this tournament, and I love him as a he player. Looks very, he looks very heavy. And I, and I was talking heavy. about that, and it's like he's not separating from defenders I'm glad he got yeah. that goal, but I don't think that's going to change moving forward. No, I don't think so either. But then he gets one, one opportunity and, and he puts it away. So I think, yes, England have a distinct advantage here. I do want to mention, this is something that Keith and I have been fighting about. Uh, there was the red card in the Swedish game. And yes, I let's talk term, about it. I used the term criminal on Twitter and it was intentional, but it did not mean that, uh, that the, the tackle was made to intentionally hurt uh, the player what and and Keith responded to me and I haven't a chance to respond to you publicly but he said but this is something that we see, <laughs> this is getting good this is something we see frequently and I have to agree with that we do see this frequently we see players launching in for those balls in the air without looking at what's around them with their cleats up and that is a dangerous part of the game that needs to be stamped out because the reason it's criminal is a decision like that whether it's intentional or not could destroy somebody's career and it happens all too often. I actually was a victim of one of those tackles in a just a, a, a stupid recreation, recreational uh, game. And if it weren't for my shin pad, the guy would have snapped my tibia in half. Uh, so for me, obviously, there's a personal element here. Again, not an intentional tackle, straight red card. And that has got to be wiped out. And to give red cards, direct red cards to players who attempt those, those challenges is a way to stamp out those challenges from the game.
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I hear the point, but I don't think you can... This game, not to, not to belittle the challenge or belittle the injury that, that you know, has become of the challenge, but when the ball's gone in that situation, the players made an attempt on the ball. When I, when I read some of the responses of, well, after he's gone for the ball, he, he can't follow through. I, I, don't, I don't know anybody who, who if, you, if you, pull, you can pull out in that situation. When your leg is already in that situation, that's very difficult. So, you know, the other player coming into that situation is creating an element of risk as well for himself. So the idea that once the ball is gone like that in your head as a player, you go, I cannot lunge. I cannot try and make a challenge just in case someone's there takes away a massive part of our sport. <clears throat> this is unfortunate, but I've seen that same thing happen, you know, time and time again, where there isn't a player coming through, the player gets a touch on it before the other player, they manage to avoid each other. That's all elements of the game. So the, the fact that this one was uh, missed time to the point where the ball was slightly gone, the player after following through makes contact and there's an injury occurred. I understand why it's a red. I just don't think you can all of a sudden say we can never follow. It's, it's, it's impossible. If you don't, and if you don't follow through, you almost you almost run the risk of injuring yourself. Yeah, I think the follow through. Here. Yeah, I think the follow through is unavoidable. I, what I'm saying is, you're right. That's a natural movement, right? If once yeah. you lunge into that challenge, you're almost out of control. You're 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 gonna you're gonna hit whatever you hit, whether it's the ball or a player. I'm just saying you can't make that challenge. And I understand that that's difficult in itself because your instinct is to attack the ball, particularly when you're a big, burly defender. So I get yeah. your point. I, I, I just think that it's too much no, no, of a no. risk to opponents. Yeah, I, I think, again, I mean, Max, I, I know you, you'll have an opinion too, but I, I just think I understand the Gary Linekers of this world making the point that, you know, this is a natural split-second decision. And there is elements of this game where there is going to be players that are going to make contact. There is going to be red cards. There is players that are going to get injured. We can't eliminate everything that happens in this game. We can eliminate the, the really, you know, bad challenges from behind where defenders haven't tend, those kind of things. And I think we've done such a better job with that in our generation than in past. What we, what you, you look at old Maradona highlights and you're like, how on earth did this guy remain standing throughout World Cup, <laughs> let alone win it? Yep. You, you yeah. know, so, so for me, I, 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 felt for the, I felt for the player getting the red card today, but I understood it because I, I felt in his head, he he saw the ball. He went and made a play for the ball. But I also I also understand why it's a red, and we have to be careful of that. But but ultimately, I think the language we put around it is important too. But th there's a great a great argument to be made on on both sides of this. And I think that's fair. And it and look, it's a contact sport, and you'd be doing a disservice from the players like Gary Lineker who brought it up back. You kind of like back back in my day, and it wasn't a foul. And what you said about Maradona, uh, we have to judge these players kind of the same way. But to me, obviously a lunge. The cleats are up. I think you've just got to train your foot to go down and those boots have not to be exposed. And that's an easier way to determine this. Remember, this was a VAR decision. And I agree, there was no malice from Danielson as he reached out for that. But what, you've got to protect these players' legs because of the severity, as Eric touched on, uh, and what damage it could cause. Uh, just to close the door here, we, we mentioned the English depth, but I should point out that Ukraine had Ruslan Malinovsky, who is highly regarded, and he took the set pieces, come off the bench, and also Artem Dovbik, Dovbik, who I've butchered his name, scores I'm sure, scores the goal. What so a, there's depth the there. But I think, I, I, Keith, you said England. You were kind of straddling it there, Eric, but who do you think gets through? 
I think it's I think it's England because of that depth. I mean, I mean you mentioned two players, Milanovski coming over off the bench. You know, I'm but England has six of those. <laughs> right. I'm I'm surprised he doesn't start. But England England just have an incredible bench, uh, and it's it's not only individual talent, but it's also versatility. It's the kind of bench that allows Southgate the ability to change tactically if he needs to do so. And I think he's a good enough coach to react to what it is that he's seeing. Okay, guys, let's go to the final quarterfinal in Baku. Not crazy about these locations. I was hoping to see Copenhagen or Copenhagen, however you say it again, and certainly uh, Budapest, but we'll, we'll do this. Baku, a little bit off the beaten path, the Czech Republic to take on Denmark. And by the way, we already have Italy, Spain, and England going through, so the folks at ESPN are going to be thrilled. I just want to pass this on that I saw on Twitter. Uh, according to John Urand, uh, who looks at ratings, France, Switzerland had 1.87 million viewers, which was considerably higher than the first game of the Stanley Cup playoffs, which was at night. Croatia, Spain went over a million viewers. So the ratings have been fantastic and now superseding the biggest day in hockey. Hockey's always a target for soccer. You want to pass that to become a major sport. And the sport certainly feels like we're getting closer to that, which is good news for all of us. But let's talk about the checks and the dink. You love ice hockey. Get that, like, I mean, I mean, I'm sorry, I respect all other sports, but let's let's look on a worldview here. I mean, I, right, but it's the Stanley Cup playoffs, and we, and a round of 16 game in the middle of the day got better ratings, Keith. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Okay, it didn't used to be that way. You understand that, right? <laughs> it used to be us three and two other yahoos watching it, and we would tweet yeah, and people say, have, who are you guys? Yeah. They have Portuguese guys in their, in their little vests hanging out during the sun. They got a drink. <laughs> Kissed. They're going to be high. We know leave, it. <laughs> yes. leave, my, leave my vest alone. Yeah. Just real quickly, just real quickly. Uh, you know, I remember when I moved to the United States in 1999, I was 18 years old. So I'm, I'm dating myself here. But I also remember the 1998 World Cup as well as Keith does, obviously, uh, which was great. I was very I was very impressed by your memory, by the way. Uh, but I, I remember having to find a pub to watch the European yes. championship games. And then the, the, the I think it was Satanta pay-per-view. Yes, was it was cut off before extra time. It's like they didn't account for extra time. So you're like, I just paid 20 bucks to be in here and you're not showing extra time. What am I supposed to do? So we've come a long way. It was a pay-per-view event. And Keith, you remember this. We were at Fox. It was a pay-per-view event as recently as 2004. You had to pay for it. I think even 2008. So it was... What's Satanta two Irish dudes that owned like two satellite dishes that yeah. were lagging the whole thing? <laughs> Satanta, we're taking you. Trust me, I'm a big rugby fan. I, I had to hand off a lot of money to Satanta, so I'm glad I don't have to see their name anymore. And for, for poking fun of a guy in a tank top in Miami, you have a lot to say considering you're going to meet your dad over in Ibiza here in a little bit. So pipe down, Costigan. So uh, let's go quickly. Czech Republic, Denmark. Denmark has looked amazing. They put Wales to the sword for zip. The Czechs beat the Netherlands 2-0. I love this Czech team. They they play such a positive style. They uh, they have good defenders. They have good midfielders. Great engine room. Uh, the, like the West Ham guys, I don't want to uh, stick to them, but Sufal and Suchek just control their positions, and Schick gets in front and scores goal. Czech Republic historically have had success. Denmark gets a lot of credit for what they did in 1992 and they deserve all the credit. But in 1996, the Czech Republic uh, made a final and pushed the Germans. They've always had players that are exciting. We don't get that from, 
you know, I think they get a reputation in Central Europe. All they're going to be plodding around. But this is a place with Vlad Smitser and Paborski and the list goes on and on. And now this Czech team kind of has that identity. This is going to be, I think, a very finely tuned matchup. Denmark has the story. Uh, and Keith, uh, we looked at Denmark in this game and you said, is, is the emotions going to come down? And not only they didn't, they, they ripped right through that door. Our guy, Martin Braithwaite, scores late. Love what he's doing, but this is a great collective effort. So much energy and enthusiasm in the Danish effort. And now we have a game that I don't think people are identifying as a great game, but I think could be the best game of the bunch. Yeah, I, I've, I've liked Denmark, and I think Eric has, has mentioned this before as well about his his like for the, the side. I, I saw it immediately in the Belgium game, their, their identity, their, their fullbacks getting into really high positions, pressing in the right manner. They're dynamic in midfield areas. I, I think they have a good balance in there as well to allow them to to win, which is you know a vital part of the field when you're coming up against someone like Suchek. Being really impressed with, with Czech Republic as well. I think they play they play some good football. I don't think they have the the star power names that they've had in the past in terms of sure. you know creativity, but I still think they're they're a fun side to watch. I I just feel like there's something about this Danish team. Um, in those attacking areas in the last couple of games, I've been really, really impressed. Um, again, players understanding their identity and role within a system. I don't, I don't believe in fairy tales like something's written. Um, you know, you have to continue to perform week in, week out. But if Denmark play as they have over the last couple of games, I think they're going to win this one. I, I think it's going to be a tight one because Czech Republic have been good, but I, I think Denmark go through. And Eric, quickly about the the Czechs. Uh, you looked at the England game. Their expectant goal was close to zero in the second half, suggesting they didn't even try to tie England in that game. They wanted the Dutch. They got the Dutch. They beat the Dutch. So hats off for the uh, the Czech campaign for doing it the right way. But the, there, there's no hiding from this Danish team who put four goals, and they they did it against Russia as well. Their goals are flying for the Danes. Yeah, let me just uh, mention that that uh, Netherlands-Czech Republic game because, you know, Frank De Boer was a villain. I, I tweeted about this earlier today. He was the villain for everybody coming into this tournament because of his very blemished club record. But I thought he actually coached the Netherlands quite well. I thought they had a, they had a system that was reliant on its most important uh, parts, and he was a little bit unfortunate. Uh, the Matthias de Ligt uh, red card is one of those. It's an orange card. Uh, and that completely uh, conditioned uh, the game. And I thought the Czech Republic took full advantage of it. I, I liked how once they had the man advantage, you know, you have a lot of teams like Ukraine, for example, that are still a little bit too precocious. And yet the Czech Republic kept sort of pushing up their lines, trying to find spaces in the, in the half space. They didn't rely on crossing too often, although ultimately that was what caught uh, the Netherlands off guard in, in the first goal. And I like their sort of methodical approach to grind down uh, Frank De Boer's team. So I think they will be a difficult proposition for Denmark. But for me, I think that Denmark and um, Denmark and Italy are the best coach teams in, in the tournament. Uh, Switzerland uh, is is also uh, among those. They just have a system. They play it well. They're a courageous team. They're, you know, excuse the term considering what happened, but they're full of hearts. I mean, this is, it, it, there's not one diva on this team. And if, if Christian Eriksen were, were playing, he's not a diva either. So there's a system in place. There's no ego. 
Uh, and th they like taking the game to their opponents. We saw it against Belgium. They ran out of steam in the last 20 minutes, and that was their downfall. But they still played well enough to beat Belgium. So I think they go into this team as heavy favorites, and they're going to live up to that label. Casper Hulman, the pride of the University of North Florida, now coaching Denmark. So we have Denmark going through. If you want an American flavor, if you're American and or if you're from the great state of Florida, which is where Eric calls home right now. And it's not always a great state, but still a state. And you could <laughs> I'm from there, too. I could say that. So uh, you have a you have a dog in the fight with the Danes. So I think we agree with Denmark. So we'll have Italy, Spain. England, Denmark, both games to be played in Wembley. I think I saw somewhere that they're going to have 60,000 for these games, which is going to be amazing because I going to the full stadium, the empty stadium is driving me bananas like they did today uh, when they where was the uh, the England game again? It was in uh, uh, it doesn't matter, but they went to Glasgow and it was half it was a quarter full. So it was very disappointing. Guys, I think we did some good work here. So we'll we'll reconvene and see if we we've got the gamblers well, because gamblers are flocking to this podcast. What can I tell you? Keith Costigan. <laughs> Eric Krakauer, thank you for your time. Really enjoy this. I know we cover a lot of base very quickly. Stoppage time is coming up, and I will give you a primer for the Gold Cup. It's just around the corner. This is the Soccer OG. We are back here, and uh, we haven't had stoppage time for the last couple of weeks, and that's a shame, because it's uh, quietly between you and me, my favorite. Get these guests out of here. What the hell do they think they're doing? Um, so, stoppage time here. We're going to change the pace, because as we transition to from the European Championship, it's going to be over here in a week and a half, and then we also have the Copa America is going to end up really quickly. They're heading to the quarterfinals, and then we have the Gold Cup. This is what we knew we were up against, and I got to say, as the Gold Cup gets closer, I'm getting more and more excited. Obviously, the United States are not going to be fielding an A team because whether they've said it or not, they have made it abundantly clear what the priorities are. World Cup and World Cup qualifying, A1. And then maybe a B to the Gold Cup and then a B- minus to Olympic qualifying. You'd still like them to do well in all of them, but if they do well in World Cup qualifying and they make an impact in the World Cup, I am okay with that as long as that is priority one and they hit their target. Olympics, you know, the Olympics, I was kind of downplaying it a little bit by going, it's not going to be a great Olympics. They're in Tokyo. Games are going to be in the middle of the day. And uh, there's not going to be a lot of fans at these venues. But now as we get closer, I'm like, oh, it would have been nice to see the U.S. in the Olympics. I will admit. And I would have watched those games. And you see what's going on with these countries that are in there. And they're getting excited uh, with a lot of heavy hitters that are going to be involved. So that should be a lot of fun. And obviously Mexico's in there and you'd like to get to them. So that's going to be a bitter pill to swallow. But the Gold Cup is going to be, and I talk more about this on the Soccer OG YouTube show under my YouTube page, Max Bretos. Check it out. I was actually in Las Vegas seizing, sizing it all up because this is going to be a Gold Cup unlike any other. In years past, we've had a final, I think, three times at the Rose Bowl. I think this is since 2000. Uh, it, it was a different format back in the 60s, 70s, 80s. It really turned into its own in the last 20 years. And then you have the Gold Cups in Rose Bowl, two at Giant Stadium, which isn't there anymore. I think it's been demolished. It's now MetLife across the street. You had a, one in Philadelphia, Levi's Stadium. I think they still call it that in Santa Clara. And you had one 
in uh, Chicago. We had a couple in Chicago, including 2007. Benny! Harbor, Benny and his Jets! 2-1 USA! You're very welcome. I still get goosebumps. I can't believe I was there and got to do that. So, um... Now it's going to be in Las Vegas. This won't be the last time a, a tournament like this is held in Las Vegas. So everything's coming to life now. The Raiders were there and they played. It was opened. Allegiant Stadium was opened in July of 2020. Raiders played, did not have any home fans. Now you're going to have a bunch of concerts. You're going to have that Tyson Fury Wilder fight is going to be held there. I think that's coming up in this week. And then, although boxing uh, <laughs> is a dead end sport. Sorry, after the Logan, the Aaron Paul or whatever, after all that, the Paul brothers and that sport has taken a few too many shots to the head. Anyway, I'm not here to to, uh, pile up on boxing, but then you also have this gold cup. And if it's USA, Mexico, or if it's just Mexico versus Qatar or Canada, it's going to be massive. They're going to sell out. It's going to be 61,000 seats. Everyone's going to want to go to Vegas to watch some sort of sporting event. Remember, Vegas was, you know, absolutely a no-no when it came to sports. Couldn't have any pro teams. Don't talk about sports. Don't even look at it. But now sports is becoming legal in more and more sports. Gambling is becoming legal in more and more states. So now, in addition to everything else, entertainment-wise, you can get in Las Vegas. You see these college basketball tournaments being held there. You have an ice hockey team that plays at the uh, T-Mobile, I believe, which is where they have the UFC cards normally. The, which USC has to be considered a professional sports outlet as well. And then, and who knows how much of an influence the UFC folks had on this. I know the Fertitta brothers, when they sold UFC for that record amount of money, there was always talk that they wanted to get involved with the Raiders. I don't know what happened. I didn't read about it. But all I know is that was sold. And now the Raiders are in Las Vegas in this beautiful, shiny new stadium. And that's the other thing. The, other, the Raiders are calling Las Vegas home. I always thought that was a good move for them. Because the Raiders are more than a city. You know, they've been in Oakland. They've been in Los Angeles. It's terrible. They moved them out of Oakland now twice. But when they left Oakland the first time, the Oakland fans remained. When they left Los Angeles the next time, the LA fans were still Raider fans. And now they go to Vegas. And I think you have a situation where Raider fans from Oakland and LA and everywhere else will flock to Vegas and still be very loyal to the badge. It's the Raiders first before the city. That's what it has become. And um, i got to be honest, it's probably cheaper if you get a flight in advance and a hotel at, like a, at the Excalibur or something. It's probably cheaper to do that than to get parking at, uh, outside Oakland Alameda or wherever the Raiders would have played in Los Angeles I'm not kidding. It's probably similar. If you do it well in advance, you could probably get that for a couple hundred bucks, right? Two days hotel at a cheaper hotel, a round trip. So uh, you get to go to Vegas. So this is not just about Vegas, but the Gold Cup is turning uh, its eyes towards Texas. And there's going to be a ton of games there. So before we get to the final, the USA, and we're going to talk about more of the teams next week, and we will uh, should have the rosters firmed up by then, and we'll know a little bit more about who's going to be playing and when. But just looking at the logistics, USA is going to play all their group's games at Children's Mercy Park in Kansas City. Fantastic little venue. And all three group games will allow folks to show up maybe for two games or spend a few days in Kansas City. And I think the U.S. will really rally about having a home base there. It's fantastic up there. The people are great. So uh, it's going to be a good experience for that young U.S. team. 
Mexico is going to be based in North Texas. So they're going to play a couple games at the Cotton Bowl, and they're going to play one at Jerry's World, Cowboys Stadium, AT&T Stadium, I think is the proper way to put it. And they'll be based there. USA is in a group with Canada. I think that's the big spot now. Uh, we still have there's 16 teams. Some of them still have to qualify. There's going to be a mini tournament to see who joins the big boys. And this Gold Cup has all the makings of being very special. The only thing pushing it back is the USA not playing with Weston McKinney, Christian Pulisic, etc. There are some of those first team players on that preliminary roster, which we pointed out. You know, Reggie Cannon. Uh, certainly comes to mind. Some young players like Caden Clark and Gianluca Busio, who continue to do extremely well in Major League Soccer, will get their turn. But Mexico's fully loaded. Canada's fully loaded. Cutter's going to be here. They are the Asian Cup champions of 2019. They, uh, they're they going to want to win this trophy, and they're capable of it. If you look at Cutter's roster in advance of hosting the World Cup, they're very serious about the game, and they have naturalized a bunch of dudes. So they're going to be tough to beat and they they play european teams and other squads and they do very well so it's not going to be a cut and dry tournament mexico usa in the final with usa having canada in their group if they stub their toe against the canadians with alfonso davies and jonathan david and they finish second then you're looking at mexico and usa probably playing in a semi-final i think i would take that in uh as opposed to not getting a mexico usa game because we saw the enthusiasm and euphoria it was caused by having it at the nation's league we want more of that it's helping to build the sport and uh the sport is building folks as i pointed out in the business end the ratings for the euros when you add that to all the other stuff going on soccer is moving up the pecking order and it's starting to pick up pace even mls numbers have been pretty promising and they have a new tv deal huge tv contracts for la liga and the city ah uh, the Premier League is going to come up. It's going to be it's going to be a battle royale to get those rights. So soccer is doing very well. So I'm glad I'm here talking to you on this podcast. Uh, not just not only because I enjoy it, but because there is a there is a very high ceiling. And uh, the Gold Cup will be something like that. So it's going to be a real Texas tournament. It's going to be a big stadium tournament. The Cotton Bowl is a bit old, but Children's Mercy is a, a brand new park. Obviously. Allegiant Stadium, Jerry's World was the the bull of the woods in stadiums. It still is in what it's able to do. And you have enough of the particulars to make it a really big deal. VAR is going to be used. It's a huge commercial uh, sponsorship deal that is, you know, a lot of big names are involved. And uh, it's uh, once it's here, people are definitely going to get into it. And I think it's going to be a big litmus test to see if this is where the U.S., men's national team finally grabs hold i mean they obviously winning it would go a long way but proving that they're getting closer and setting the table for september when they will start world cup qualifying in that octagon against el salvador at san salvador they'll have three games in september and then we're off and running and then world cup or bust here we come so much more on the Gold Cup coming up i just gave you a little bit of a primer on what to expect and an unnecessary vegas trip to to, to do that but I was able to keep some receipts and it's all a tax write-off at this point the soccer OG as always a pleasure to be with you please subscribe rate and review we'll continue to have great guests we'll continue to get to the finish end here of the Euros and we'll be back on Sunday with a new podcast for your listening pleasure this is Max Preto saying Placido Domingo